we finished Daniel last uh, Wednesday night. And uh, I like to jump back and forth between Old Testament and New Testament and also different uh, genres of literature. Sunday morning we're in Gospel, looking at Gospel of Mark, so I thought we'd go to one of Paul's epistles. I did something recently at Taylor Glenn. I don't want the Taylor Glenn folks to think this is going to be a mere repeat of that because this is actually going to end up being more involved in what I did there. Okay? But we're going to look at 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And so if you guys would pass those out. And tonight we've got a lot of introductory uh, ground to cover and into the first chapter as well. So we better get started. 1st Thessalonians. Find that in your copy of the scripture. 1st Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, I'll read tonight the whole chapter, but really we're just going to probably cover the first three or four verses this evening. That may be the only time that we have. There's no fill in the blanks tonight. In this uh, introductory lesson, I just kind of wanted to get everything out on the table to you so you wouldn't miss anything. And uh, I'll give you some blanks to fill in in the future. So if you need something to do tonight, just color on your page or something. (laughs) Living out Christian faith in an unbelieving culture. That's what we're going to call this series. Living out Christian faith in an unbelieving culture. And uh, tonight, looking at the uh, theme of rising above mediocrity and impacting your world. Did you run out? I did. Uh, Eddie's got more. Here, here you go. Oh, it's just Lynn. Amen. We got, we got a couple. You got a couple. Everybody have back in front. Make sure you got back in two. Got back in front. Everybody got back in front. Good. You what? I need one of these. Uh, did Jim? Is Jim's not back in front? Nope. Run that back to Jim. If you don't want to pass it back to him. Did anybody else just get one side? Anybody else? Because I'm, I'm thinking some uh, he must have got one of the two originals, so somebody else has the other original before I copy them. Okay, you did that, but you got it. Okay, good, 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 good. Let's begin reading tonight. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, uh, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always thank God for all of you making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That's the reading of the 
CSB and also the NIV, and it captures well that it's work produced by faith, uh, labor motivated by love, and hope, uh, I mean, uh, endurance inspired by hope. Those two translations really capture those phrases well. He goes on in verse 4 to say, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord, when in spite of severe persecution, you welcome the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven to be raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, folks, no doubt you've heard the old saying before, if you find the perfect church, don't join it. You'll mess it up. And that's true, isn't it? There is no perfect church this side of heaven. But you know, as we read the New Testament, we find that some churches seem to be uh, more commendable than others. And the Lord actually had some very good words to say about some of the churches. Uh, I, think of, I think of three or four. First of all would be the church at Philippi. They participated like no other congregation with Paul in ministry. Uh, when many turned away from Paul, they stuck with him, even when he was in prison. And you remember what they did when he was in prison? They sent gifts through Epaphroditus, right? Uh, so they were a model church. Paul said, you've participated with me in the spread of the gospel. Also think of the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2. It was a model church. Jesus said they were a very poor church pertaining to the things of the world. But he said at the same time, you're very rich. And he commended them because they had faced great tribulation from the hands of, of their enemies, and yet they were faithful. They were a model group of believers. And then in Revelation 3, there was the church at Philadelphia, another model church. Jesus said of them that they had kept his word and they had not denied him and that as a result, he had set before them an open door for the spread of the gospel. They were a model church. Well, another one we come to would be this one, the church at Thessalonica. And we're going to start seeing why here in chapter one. Uh, they rose above just a, a, a level of mediocrity and they really did have a great impact on their world. I want you to turn with me back to Acts chapter 17 for a moment. Acts chapter 17. Because I want you to see how the gospel ended up uh, arriving in Thessalonica. 
Acts chapter 17. And read with me, beginning in verse 1, I'll read down through verse 15. It says, after they, that would be Paul and his traveling companions in missionary work. They're on their uh, second missionary journey. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. So we see the level of persecution there at Thessalonica that the believers encountered. Now, when Paul visited Thessalonica in A.D. 49 or 50, it was already a very well-established city with a rich history. Uh, it had been founded by Cassander, one of Alexander the Great's uh, army commanders, and he named the city after his wife, Thessalonica who was Alexander the Great's half-sister. Now, it had the best harbor of any other city in Macedonia. And it was also on the Via Ignatia, which was the main route between, the main highway between Rome and the east. Uh, no wonder Thessalonica became the capital city of Macedonia. Uh, one commentator said that it was actually the key to, to all of Macedonia, really the success of the whole province or the whole uh, region. 
and it even narrowly escaped becoming the capital of the ancient world. So it was a very thriving, very important place. And there was a Jewish population there that was big enough to have a Jewish synagogue. Remember Philippi, when he went to before Thessalonica, they had a Jewish population, but not a big enough population for a Jewish synagogue. So Paul met with the believers, the Jewish uh, uh, people, that is, down by the river. Because, again, they didn't have a big enough Jewish population to have a synagogue. But in Thessalonica, they did. And we're told that Paul preached the gospel there in the synagogue for three successive Sabbaths. Uh, it was a bustling city of about 200,000. It had a population of Jews and of Gentiles and some who filled the pagan temples of, of the day. There were also Gentiles who had become God-fearers. That is, they identified with the Jewish people and, and worshiping God of the Old Testament alongside of the Jews. They were uncircumcised, but nonetheless, they were God-fearing Gentiles. And then there were also Romans there in Thessalonica who uh, pledged allegiance to Caesar and would be all too ready to say, Caesar is Lord. Uh, and so it had a just a multifaceted makeup. It had a big sailor population there as well as immigrants and world travelers. One commentator describes it as being a place where people were afloat in a sea of great religious pluralism and confusion. Does that sound like our day and age today? We're afloat in a sea of pluralism and confusion. Folks, their world was just like ours in many ways. Okay? Uh, it was a key city at a key crossroads in the ancient world. And so Paul saw it as a great city in which to plant a church that could shine the light of Christ throughout that whole entire region. Now from Thessalonica, of course, Paul went down to Berea and then on to Athens and then to Corinth. And it was from Corinth that Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. And folks, what that means for us is other than the book of Galatians, 1 Thessalonians is Paul's earliest letter that he wrote. Now, in, in this place, there was a wonderful communion between the church and the gospel as Dr. John R.W. Stott wrote. Uh, he said the gospel results in believers who make up a church. And so in that sense, the gospel, the preaching of the gospel creates the church. It's what God uses to give birth to the church. And then he said then the church goes on to spread the gospel even more. And then the gospel continues to shape the church. That's a good reminder, right? The gospel results in believers who make up a church. The gospel creates the church. Then the church spreads the gospel. And then the gospel continues to shape the church. We need to remember that. 
Well, again, we're going to see in this church just a dynamic group of believers who really impacted their pagan environment. What we're going to see is they were an energetic people. They were an elect people. They were an exemplary people. And they were an expectant people. We see all of that in chapter 1. But we're only going to look at the very first part of that. They were an energetic people. Okay? Look again at verse 3. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Paul thought about them, as he's giving thanks for them in his prayers, three things about them really come to his mind that describes the, the kind of congregation they were. And let's look at all three of these. First of all, their work of faith, or their work produced by faith. What does Hebrews 11, 6 tell us? That without faith, it is impossible to please God, right? That verse in Hebrews doesn't say that faith is, is just you know, kind of a good thing to have. Sort of a suggested thing. If we're going to please God, it's a necessary thing. It's an essential thing. Without faith, you and I will never please God. And it was their faith that really produced their work. We know that men will work for a number of reasons. Men sometimes in the past and in some parts of the world today will work because they are forced to. I'm speaking of slave labor. We also know men will work out of a sense of obligation. They know they're to be productive members of society. Others will work out of love. They love what they do so much they cannot wait for their feet to hit the ground in the morning and get to work. They absolutely love what they do. Some will work because of needs. They've got bills to pay. And some will work for security so they have a nest egg for the future. That's some of the reasons we work. Well, again, notice their motivation here. What was it? It was faith. It was faith. So, of course, he's speaking of their work for Christ. Folks, does the world see our work of faith? Do they see that in us? That's what faith does. Hebrews 11 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Think of that. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There's a Christian writer by the name of Marshall Shelley. He's a great example of this. He suffered the death of two of his children, and in a past issue of Leadership Journal, uh, he writes, he says, Even as a child, I loved to read, and I quickly learned that I would most likely be somewhat confused during the opening chapters of a novel. 
because new characters and plot lines are continually being introduced. But I learned to keep reading, he said. Why? Because if you know the author, that he or she is a good author, by the end of the novel, will weave all of these plot lines and characters together by the end of the book, and eventually each and every element will be meaningful and necessary. He goes on to say, at times such faith has to be a conscious choice. Even when I can't explain why a chromosomal abnormality develops in my son, which prevents him from living on earth more than two minutes, even when I can't fathom why our daughter has to endure two years of severe and profound retardation and continual seizures, I choose to trust that before the book closes, the author will make all things clear. What is that? That's faith. That's faith. And of course, we know that our journey of faith begins at salvation. We weren't there when they crucified Jesus and when he came out of the tomb, but we believe the testimony of God's word. We see God's handiwork in creation. Even though we weren't there, we believe. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. We believe God's word. God tells us to serve, so we serve. God tells us to witness, so we witness. That's faith. Well, he says about the Thessalonians that their faith is what governed their world. Again, what governs your life? What is your anchor? What drives you? Is it material gain? Is it being popular or accepted? Is it power? Or is it faith? What is it that drives you? Christian men and women need to be people of faith. And our faith is to be seen by what we do. That's the whole point of the book of James, isn't it? We're not saved by works, but we're saved for good works. Good works are not the root of our salvation. Good works are the fruit of our salvation. A genuine faith is to produce change in us that means that we live differently and act differently than we did before coming to Christ. We're to live a life of good works. And you know, even the world expects this, right? Uh, what if a man claims to be a Christian, but in the office, he's known as having the filthiest mouth in the office. He's known to run around on his wife, cheat and cut corners, and yet he tells everybody he's a Christian. What are the unbelievers in the office going to think? Hypocrite. Hypocrite, exactly. Exactly. They'll say, you know, why do I need to go to church? If, if he's an example of a Christian, then I don't need that. Even unbelievers expect our lives to be governed by our faith and our lives to be somewhat different than people in the world. 
And they want to see a difference in us. And that's why Paul said of Timothy, Timothy, as I look at you, I see in you, Timothy, you're my son in the faith, and I see in you a genuine, sincere faith. That was in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He said, I, I see a faith that is genuine, that is literally the Greek word that Paul used of Timothy was the word hypocritical with the A in front of it, the alpha privet, which makes it the opposite. Hypocritical with the A in front of it, you're the opposite of hypocritical. We do the same. A theist is somebody who believes in God, put the A in front of it, and an atheist is what? Somebody who doesn't believe in God. So put the alpha primitive in front of a word, and that kind of negates it. Paul said, Timothy, I look at you, and I see somebody who is non-hypocritical. I see somebody who is sincere, who's authentic, who has a very real walk with Christ. In the Latin, it comes over sinicere, meaning without wax, because in the marketplaces back then, when they were selling their pottery, some of the unscrupulous dealers, if their pottery became cracked, uh, they would put wax in it, fill in the cracks, and then paint over that and to, to try to sell it for a big price anyway. And, and some buyers knew there are certain ways you could hold it up to the sunlight and turn it and look, see if there were any cracks in it. If there were no cracks in the pottery, it was sine, Sarah, Sarah, without wax. It was sincere. That's how we are to be in our faith. What are we like when held up to the light? Folks, the world needs to see our faith in action. Amen. And that's what Paul saw in his Thessalonians. He saw a genuine faith in action. I cannot tell you the number of times in 35, 40 years of ministry now that I've had people come to me who are now grown. Now, this hasn't happened a bunch. I don't want to act like it's a common thing. But I've had people say, Pastor, when we were growing up, we were in church every week. But since we got home from church, my dad was the biggest drunk, and he'd beat the kids and beat mama and They'd run around on each other and all kinds of stuff like that. And then we'd go to church on the weekend and put on our smiley faces. And everybody thought we were the perfect family. And pastor, it was a sham. And so now that I've come to faith in Christ and I really understand what, what a Christian life is to be about, I see what I had in my home growing up wasn't the real thing. As Paul looked at the Thessalonians, he saw the real thing. The work produced by their faith, a genuine faith that had changed them. He saw something else too. What was the next thing he saw? Labor of love. Labor motivated by love. And it's interesting the word that he uses here for labor. It's the word for intense labor. Intense labor. Now, what's that tell you about the Christian life? Not easy. It's not easy. 
give me your best. Give me your best. <coughs> the word strive uh, actually has, I guess, a root word, the at word of agony. Mm-hmm. So That's right. I'm to be more like Christ. Yeah. And he didn't, he suffered. He was wrong. Right. So we can't expect a whole lot different. Some people think the Christian life is supposed to be easy. <laughs> Or I come to church. Hey, I want a great church. I'm not going to do anything. They need people work in the nursery. Let somebody else. Need people in the choir. Let somebody else. Need Sunday school teacher. Let somebody else. Need deacons. Let somebody else. Oh, I want a great church. So, what they mean? They just want to come and sit and soak, right? Warm a pew. We've got to labor for the Lord. We're not to have a consumer's mentality. Now, certainly there's great benefits to being a believer. You know, Paul talks about those in Romans 5 through 8, doesn't he? Chapter 5, we've got peace with God through Christ. Through Christ, we've got access into his presence. We've got a glorious hope. In chapter 8, he begins that chapter by saying there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He ends that chapter by saying there's no separation from the love of God for those who are in Christ. And in between those two things, uh, we've got the help of the Holy Spirit when we're weak. And so are there benefits to the Christian life? You better believe it. But there's also responsibilities. And that's why he gets over to Romans chapter 12 and he says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. We've got responsibilities. (coughs) Jesus said, he who saves his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Are you losing your life for Christ's sake and gospel's sake? Are you laboring in the Lord's vineyard? And notice how they were laboring. What kind of labor was it? A labor motivated by what? By love. If you're willing to serve God, but you hate doing it, and you have to have your arm twisted to do it, something is wrong at the core of your relationship with Christ. You take a young man in love with a girl, maybe somebody he she wants to ask her to marry him. If she's got some event coming up tomorrow and she needs her car washed, if it's midnight, he'll wash her car for her. Right? <laughs> The Bible says Jacob worked for Rachel for seven years. And he did so because of his love for her. And because of his love for her, that seven years that he worked for her dad seemed only as a day. It was a labor of love. Hmm? 14 and 14, yeah. Seven, then Laban tricked him with Leah, and then another seven for Rachel's hand in marriage. But he did it. He loved Rachel. 
Our work, our labor for Christ is to be a labor of love. The Old Testament closes Malachi. And you remember one of the things God said about them that he was grieved by and even angry with them over. Because the way they turned up their noses at God's work. They labored for the Lord, but they were kind of like, it's such a bother. And you remember what God said? God said, I wish one of you just go to the doors of the temple and shut the doors and not even come in here and profane my place. Your labor for Christ is to be a labor of love. And folks, think about it. We don't have to serve Christ, we get to. Right? And then thirdly, I want you to notice concerning them what Paul says. Their steadfastness of hope. Your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a hopeless society. So many people without hope. But folks, that's not us. That's not believers. We're not without hope. Job asked, if a man dies, will he live again? And what does Scripture say about that? Yes. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, being always of good courage, knowing that while we are home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Jesus in John 14 said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Christians are to be a people of hope. Because of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. He's defeated sin and the grave and death. And He's promised to work in our lives even when we're going through hardships and trials and tribulations. He's using those to bring about maturity in us and a a more complete nature to us. He's, He's working to grow us. So we are to be steadfast and enduring in our hope. And the word Paul uses here, Joyce, tell us again, because you said it last week. Greek word, right? Yes. Patient endurance. Endurance that comes even though you are having to bear up under a heavy load. It's not the kind of patience that comes because your life is easy and everything's going your way but it's the kind of endurance that God gives you. Uh, When He gives you a strength more than anything you possess on your own, you're able to bear up under the trials and the difficulties. And Paul says that's what he saw in them. Again, I refer you back to Acts chapter 17. 
the kind of environment Thessalonica was. I mean, there were a lot of enemies to the gospel there at Thessalonica. But they bore up under, under that difficulty. And they had a steadfast hope in Christ. Some years ago, I told you a really neat story that I read one time, true story, about a group of behavioral scientists. They caught some rats down at the docks, put them in a tank of water, and observed to see how long they would last before drowning. The average time was 17 minutes. Then they repeated the experiment, but this time, just as the rats were giving up and going under the water, they reached down and saved them, dried them off, fed them, let them rest, put them back in their cages, waited a couple of days, repeated the experiment. This time, the rats didn't last for only 17 minutes. They lasted for 36 hours. And one scientist, to quote one of them, he said, they were able to survive because they had been saved. They were Christian rats? <laughs> you say, well, that's rats. What about people? What about people? Not rats. What about people? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because <laughs> back in the 1980s, there was a little fella in a burn unit of one of the nation's leading hospitals. And his prognosis wasn't good at all. And yet that little boy, he had a teacher at school that would come in every day, go over his lessons with him and his assignments with him and tell him what his homework was. He started making a remarkable recovery. Nobody expected him to even live. He started making a remarkable recovery. They asked him later about it. He said, well, I knew when my teacher came in to keep me up to date on my lessons, there was hope because you certainly never would have allowed that for a boy who was dying. No. <laughs> hope. We've been given hope in Christ. Paul says your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope. Paul said to the Ephesians, you once had no hope, but now you do have hope. You were among the uncircumcision, called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Remember that you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But he went on to tell them, that's not you now. Because you've been included in the family of God. He said, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So again, Christians are not to be a hopeless people. 
That's why Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Yeah. The Thessalonians were steadfast in their hope. Folks, don't lose your hope. Don't give up in life. Don't grow bitter at God. Don't hang up your faith. Have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches over his own. Paul looked at this church in a very difficult city, a pagan city. They lived in the midst of a dark culture, but he'd seen a change in them, and he saw their work produced by faith, their labor motivated by love, their endurance inspired by hope. They had become something in and through Christ which they could have never become their own. I want to ask you tonight to examine your faith. Is your faith mere words? Are you kind of like the guy in the book of James? If somebody came to your door and knocked and had needs in his life, you just say, God bless you and shut the door in his face. Or would you do something? What kind of faith do you show? Do you show? Does your life, the testimony of your life, your works, your actions show that your faith is the real thing? Is your labor for Christ a labor of love? Or is it a drudgery? <clears throat> you know, it's said of the apostles in the book of Acts that they even considered it to be a privilege to be able to suffer for Christ. Or again, is your labor for the Lord more like in the book of Malachi? Oh, what a burdensome, tedious thing it is. How about your hope? Has life robbed you of hope? That can happen to unbelievers. It's not supposed to happen to believers because we're supposed to keep our eyes on Jesus. Even in the midst of trials, knowing that at some point, he's going to bring good out of it. And so we keep our hope strong in him. Corey Tinboom, her favorite picture in, in her home there in Holland, was a yarn weaving, crocheting or knitting, and she had it turned around. So when you went into her kitchen, all you saw was all this mass of strings hanging out the back. Made no sense at all. And somebody asked her about it one time. She took it off the wall and turned it around. It was a beautiful picture. They said, Corey, why, why do you have it turned backwards? She said, to remind me that with turned backwards, this mess of strings, that's how my life looks sometimes. But God is the author of my life. And he's weaving something beautiful that I don't even always see. But he sees. That's how we're to be. People of hope. Work produced by faith, labor motivated by love, endurance inspired by hope. And again, that's what Paul saw when he saw the people in the church there 
at Thessalonica. You see why it's one of the great churches in the New Testament? Any comments or questions? Rick? Makes me think about the comment I heard uh, John MacArthur talking about. It's actually out of a uh, study he was doing on 1 Corinthians 13, where he's got faith, hope, and charity, or love. Mm-hmm. And he makes an interesting point. He says, The day's coming, and you're not going to need faith or hope because your faith will be realized and your hope will be actualized. Mm-hmm. And, but you're going to always need the love. Because that's the one thing that goes from now all the way into the kingdom of God and abide with us eternally. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting that all three of those are mentioned in this lesson. Mentioned here. Faith, hope, and love. Yeah. And yet, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest of these is love. Yeah. Good. Faith, hope, and love. I couldn't help but thinking of this uh, this verse in Matthew where it says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you found rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. And I think I think uh, those words, you know, gave me uh, the energy or the inspiration to go over the top and do more than they would normally be able to do because they have the promise of the Lord. Absolutely. You know. And the fact that we're not alone. Because yeah. he says, take my yoke upon you, the way they would yoke yeah. a younger, inexperienced animal to an older, stronger, more mature one to learn from. Yeah. So Jesus is saying, let me put my yoke on you and line up me. So his presence with us gives us strength and hope. Yeah. Pastor Scott, I'm not going to try to give you fancy things to say. Um, but my question is this. When Paul wrote that about the church, uh-huh. he wrote it about a group of people, not necessarily individuals. Right. So I think what what I came from it is I see a lot of failure in my in my life with people perceiving my faith. I see a lot of failure in my life where I'm not giving the love that I need to. Right. But through my family and through the family of the church, I hope that my little bit of attribute to it mm-hmm. is magnified to others when they see our family, they don't see me. They see God through the family. Yeah, okay. and when everybody's <coughs> efforts and gifts are multiplied together. Right. So I guess I, I set judgment on myself because I don't have those three attributes perfected yet. Sure. But I don't need it because grace overcomes that perfection. <coughs> he wants my direction, not my perfection. Right. But I think within the church, we need to be perfect to this woke world that has no direction. um. Absolutely. 
And by the way, none of us have arrived yet. It's not just you. <laughs> but it's a great reminder that you make. There, we need to see it as not just the individual focus, but a corporate focus too. Because in the New Testament, when we see letters to churches and the commands given and encouragement and so forth, there's that corporate dimension to the body of Christ. And in America, we're we're long rangers. We're, you know, me, myself, and I. We're, but we we need to understand we're a body together, and we forget that too often, don't we? But as you point out too, where we might be weak in one area in the body of Christ, that might be their strength, and together we're able to do what you couldn't do on your own. I read a story one time, um, President Kennedy's mother, Rose Kennedy. There was so much tragedy in that family, and someone asked her, how could she go on living and bear up under all the tragedy that happened with her children and her husband? And she said, because Jesus Christ told me he would be with me, and I would not have to carry a burden too heavy to move back. First Corinthians ten thirteen. He won't put on us more than we can bear. Yeah. 